So, howdy. howdy. I am impressed. This is why I don't gamble, because if somebody had asked me, I'd have bet 50 people. I uh, got some texts this morning, and I, so I texted Brian Fisher, who's a good friend of mine over at Grace. I texted him, and I said, hey, Brian, you guys having services? We are. So Brian texted me back, and he said, yeah. We're having services, but what I should have done is just sent him over to Central and slept in. So <laughs> I love that guy because he has the same wicked sense of humor I do. Now, it's a great day to hit this passage, actually. We're in 1 Timothy 5. We've come to verse 17. This is kind of what I would call a huddle passage. Now, there's some great passages in the Bible. Colossians has this great kind of diatribe about who Jesus is, and it lists all these different characteristics, and you go, wow, it's a great passage. We come to a passage today that is really more instructive. It's an interesting passage. why I call it a huddle passage. It's the kind of passage it'd be good to just huddle in the living room and walk through because it's basically a passage about the relationship between a pastor, staff, and the church, what the church's responsibility is, what the pastor and staff's responsibility is. So it's an interesting little instructive passage. Now, I do have one other thing to say. How many of you brought children today? You're here with children. Okay, you don't have to tithe for the next five years. Because if you got here with children, we'll just double the tithe on those that should have been here that don't have any. So that's how we're going to do it. I'm kidding. We want the checks Monday. So here we go. Now, here's the difficulty with this text. As part of this, as I preach, it is going to be self-serving. There's nothing I can do about that. It's the text, so we'll just walk through it as best we can, and we'll see where we go. Now, one other thing, we're going to cancel Sunday school after this, so you can get home. I understand Harvey Road's closed, so uh, you'll have to find some other way around that. But uh, we're going to let you go after the service, so I'm just going to go really long. Here we are. <laughs> 517, he says, the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the Word and in teaching. For the scripture itself says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading grain. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Now here's the first thing it says, okay? First thing. It says, you have to pay me. That's what it says. Now, uh, obviously the elders in Ephesus where Timothy's pastoring were paid. May well be a reference to the fact that you have paid staff on a church. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point. Here's the deal. There are a couple of things we'll look at in that verse for just a second, but this church has always done that well. I mean, they have always been gracious. When we have staff that come in, I say, look, you come here, this church will take care of you. They always have. So I'm not going to belabor that point. I will say one thing to you. If you leave here and move off and you go somewhere, there aren't many churches like this church. I have pastor friends who are going into retirement they have a minimal amount of money in their retirement account. They don't have a house because they've been in a parsonage their whole life. And so they're going into retirement fearful. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that Guidestone, the retirement firm that holds the retirement money for churches and hospitals and Baptist institutions, has a deal called Adopt an Annuitant. And what they've done is they give a certain amount per month for certain pastors who were living way below the poverty level at retirement. So the church has a responsibility, and I'm just saying you have lived that out and continue to live that out well. Now, he says, those of us 
and serve are worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. Now, does that mean that the pastor's better than the other staff? No. But let me tell you a couple things it does mean. I think the difference is the guy that labors where I labor, and again, I, I, I'm just walking off the text, so give me some time here. But we knew what I do versus the other staff. The distinctives are responsibility and target. Matter of fact, I was working on this yesterday morning, walking through this exact section of my sermon when my phone rang, picked it up, it was Tim Skaggs who's been on staff here. So I said, hey, man, I'm working through a sermon and your name is coming up in the morning. And Tim said, I don't even want to know how it's coming up. We've had several guys on staff uh, that have gone on to pastor. Jerry, Deemore, Kevin Eckert, uh, Tim Skaggs, who's now at Brownwood. As a matter of fact, he's a bishop in Brownwood. Uh, Kyle Hoover that we started the church with in uh, Charlottesville. So Kyle's there doing a great job ministering hope in the middle of absolute fear. But Tim was one of the ones, and Kevin was, they, every one of them has called me within the first month of being full-time pastor. I'll never forget, Kevin went Southside, he's now at First Georgetown, but he went Southside in Abilene, he gave me a call a month later, and he said, okay, here's the deal. And Kevin never calls, so you just got to understand, it's always, he wants something or he's sharing something. So Kev called, he said, here's the deal, man, this guy comes in my office and he's wearing me out over something pretty trivial, and he said, I, I merely thought, well, you need to go talk to Chris Osborne. And then he said, then I realized I am Chris Osborne. So there is a different responsibility for those of us that are what the Bible would indicate are head elders. We do have different responsibility. Children's minister goes to bed worried about the children. The youth minister goes to bed worried about his youth. The pastor does go to bed worried about the entire church. So there is a distinction responsibility. There's also a distinction of target. Now, there's nobody in this room Satan doesn't want to take down. No question about that. Everybody's got a target on their back. Staff's target is bigger because he'd love to take one of them down. When you're the pastor, that's the one he really wants to take down. So he does two things in a pastor's life. Early on in the ministry, he tries to discourage us, to get us to quit before we can learn enough for God to actually do something in our life. But then when you come to the point where God's used you in a certain way, then his goal is to do two things. The target is either he wants to take you down morally because then he can undo everything you've done or just make you spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually lazy so you coast to the end and you don't do anything for your people. So the target's huge. And so let me just say one thing here. And I know the passage seems self-serving. There's nothing I can do. I'm going through the text. This is not my call. But let me just share one thing with you. Uh, when you read the Gospels, Jesus only one time asked for something personal from his guys. One time. Now, he asked them to do a lot of different things, but it was always in case with the ministry. He asked one thing from them personally, one time. Last night of his life, one guy's off to betray him. He's got the other 11. He gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes the eight and says, you hang here for just a minute. And then he takes his three closest, the guys that understand him the best. And he pulls them over. And he says, listen, I got one thing. I don't want your tithe money. I don't want any ministry right now. 
I want you to pray for me. And he goes off, and he comes back, and have they done it? No. He wakes him up to do it, makes the second personal request, goes back, comes back, still not awake, wakens, personal request, goes back. Third time, the intensity of the pressure is so deep on him that the capillaries in his sweat glands burst and blood comes out with his sweat. The emotional attack by the demonic horde on him is intense. And he finally comes back and says, it's all right, we're good to go. I really will believe until the day I die. Had they prayed for him, his struggle would have been immensely less. So I have one personal request. You put me on your prayer list. I I know it seems self-serving, but the text is clear. There's a different responsibility and a different target for those of us that are senior pastors. We're not better than the staff, none of that, but there is a different target and a different responsibility. And so my only request to you is that you put me on my prayer list. It's the only personal request I'll make to you. But he makes this statement, right? He says, those that labor well. I have a responsibility to you, as does every staff member here. We have a responsibility to labor for you well. In my case, in the word and teaching, that means I take this book. It's why I do book by book, verse by verse. Because that way I'm forced to text that I would never go to. Remember Paul, remember we've talked about this. Paul basically said, Timothy, I got a box of teaching I've given you. I want you to live inside that box. I want you to take that box and put it in your life and train with it. And I want you to make sure that when you're in that box, nobody's mouth keeps you from implementing anything in the box. If you don't go verse by verse, book by book, which Andy Stanley said was cheating. If you don't do that, you know what happens as a pastor? Here's what you do. You look in the box and you pick out the protections you understand and you pick out the sections you like. When you do verse by verse, book by book, you've got to come to sections you don't understand and you've got to preach sections you don't like. And I don't think a pastor can do it well if he's not doing that. And I think every single staff member owes you the responsibility of living out their calling well. Now, so your responsibility, number one, is to bless us. There's a great verse in the end of Hebrews that makes this statement. It says that you are responsible for making our ministry enjoyable. Now that's an interesting take. So you have a responsibility here to bless us. Now here's the next thing. Look at this, verse 19. Against an elder, do not receive an accusation unless there are two or three witnesses. Those who have sinned, convict them before everybody in order that the remainder might become afraid. Now, You have a responsibility to bless us. Number two, you have a responsibility to hold us accountable to who we are in Christ. Now, never shared this before, so I'm going to share a little private staff thing so that we get and understand the picture. He says that you are to hold us accountable on staff based on, but you don't entertain an accusation against us unless there are two or three, what's the word? Witnesses. What's a witness? Somebody saw something. 
Somebody heard something. Somebody knows something for sure. You're not a witness if you don't know something. You saw it, you got it, it's yours. So if you're not a witness, then you don't get to make an accusation. If there are two or three witnesses that say they saw me driving into some porn distributorship and coming out with videotapes, then you hold me accountable. But not if there's no witnesses. Then you trust who we are. So let me just share my heart here for a minute. A few years back, we had a staff issue that arose in this church. That was pretty painful. Now let me walk you through what happened and walk you through what we experienced so that we're clear on what the text is saying. Staff came to me. They came to me. And they said, look, we got an issue. It's got to be addressed. I said, okay, I'm leaving town tomorrow. I've got a meeting out of town for a week. Y'all handle it. I'll respond to whatever you respond to when I get back. So the staff dealt with the issue. I got back in town a week later and sat down with them. And they said, look, we dealt with the issue. but We got no response. We got nowhere. So a couple of staff and I dealt further with the issue. We got nowhere. So finally, one evening, I got the staff in the room. And you need to understand something about our staff. I want two things in my staff, or at least two things in regard to this kind of situation. I want people that are in my corner but are not yes people. Our staff speaks to everything in staff, and we have no problem with looking at somebody and saying no. So I got the staff in the room, every one of them, just us. I said, look, here's the issue we face. You brought it to me. We can't reconcile it. I said, I have a question tonight. I said, we're going to go around the room and every one of us is going to answer. Is this redeemable? So we just started around the room. Every staff member looked at me and said, it's not redeemable. So based on their recommendation, went to personnel, went to the deacons, and we wound up remedying the situation. Now, it was a painful, it's probably the understatement of the millennium, it was painful, year and a half, two years. We just kind of hunkered down as a staff. But here's what I remember. The word on the street was that this was all my idea. The staff had nothing to do with that. I shoved it down their throat and told them they had to answer to it. I remember distinctly a guy coming into my office and he sat down and he said, so I know you're the reason that this issue was done and you forced it down the staff's throat. And finally, I'd had enough. And I said, well, let me ask you something. You talked to any of the staff? Any of them say that? Well, no, they did not. I didn't talk to anybody. I said, well, how do you know what happened in a private staff meeting between us? Well, I, I, just, I just know what happened. I said, no, you don't. You weren't there. You weren't in the room. I walked him through everything I just told you, and I said, you weren't there. You have no idea. And there's the ball game. Now, if two or three staff come out and say, you know, Chris made us do this, then, then you indict me and you deal with me. But no church has the right to deal with a staff member unless there are two or three witnesses. If there are, then you deal with us. 
And you have a responsibility to hold us accountable, but you got to make sure you really know what you're holding accountable. You got to have some legitimate witnesses. That's the text. Now, if you have legitimate witnesses, you see me doing something uh, absolutely out of character and out of holy character, and you have two, three people see that and that comes up, then you have a responsibility, he says, to deal with me publicly. We have always dealt with issues with staff publicly. We don't deal with them privately. We don't hide anything under the table. We are always up front with what we have to deal with as staff. And let me tell you why. He, number one, says so that fear is on all of us. So once, once a staff member is dealt with, everybody else goes, I better get myself under key. We had a staff member that left this church, he and his wife, family, years ago, went to a church in another state. While in that church, he got involved in a same-sex relationship, left his wife, left his family, and moved in with this guy. So the church didn't do this. Now, they addressed him. But they didn't do it in a public way. They just said, he's gone. We're going to call him Bob. Said, Bob's gone. Uh, we, you know, we've had an issue and we'll move on. Now, it became pretty clear that there was a moral issue. But here's the problem when it's not addressed publicly. I called his wife. Pick and I knew her well. And I called her and just talked to her a little bit and said, man, I'm so sorry for what's happened. I know it's got to be killing you. And then she made the statement to me. She said, you know, because the pastor didn't address it, she said, there are people that really loved him and they think I'm the one that had the affair. So there is a responsibility. If one of us on this staff is elders, if one of us fails morally, you have two responsibilities. You hold us accountable and you remove us from our position of service and you do it in a public way. Now, attorneys hate that because they're always worried about lawsuits. You don't care about a lawsuit. You tell the truth in a public setting. Now, look at what else he says. I charge you before God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels. It's a big deal that you guard all these things without uh, partiality and you don't do anything according to prejudice. Now, you know what he just said? He said, you can't be the NFL when you do this. There was a church, I'm not going to say where it was, uh, because if I did, you'd know the name. But there was a church in another city in Texas. They had a worship minister who had an affair with one of the choir members. So the pastor pulled him in and said, can't serve anymore. Now, the choir went nuts. They looked at the pastor and began to pull out the phony use of grace. Listen, we got to show grace. We got to love this guy. We got to forgive him. It's okay. Previous verse, no, you can't do that. You hold us accountable. The reason they did that is very simple. His giftedness was so huge that it overwhelmed his lack of character. And so they didn't want him gone, even though his character no longer fit the calling of a minister of Christ. His giftedness did, and they didn't want to lose the giftedness. You don't hold partiality with any of us. For example, there's some football team up in uh, Dallas. This year, this is one of my favorite moments for this team. They have this wide receiver 
who gets caught missing a warrant in South Carolina. So there's a thing issued out for his arrest. So this team said, well, we're going to let him go because we're taking the high road because we care about integrity. Turns out, they found out the warrant was wrong. This guy was not the guy. South Carolina had the wrong name. But they didn't rehire him because they're holding a high standard. But then they have a running back who beat up a girl. Pretty clear he did some physical harm to a girl. But he's still on the team. Why? Because we have a little prejudice. This guy was a second string wide receiver who could do nothing to help the team. This guy can help them get to a Super Bowl. So the giftedness is more important than the character. And that is our society. And that is how things work. But that is not how they work in the church. Doesn't matter who a guy is or a girl, doesn't matter how gifted they are, if there is discipline to be brought, it's to be brought publicly and to be dealt with completely. And then he says this, verse 22, don't lay hands quickly on anybody nor join in the sins of someone else. Keep yourself pure. He says, make sure that you don't hire staff quickly. You make sure of what you're hiring. Now let me tell you something. We're just having a huddle time today, so let me just tell you. When we look for staff, we've hired some people too quickly. And we've made some bad mistakes. We've learned that I, I now look for three things. I remember talking to Matt Carter, who's a pastor in Austin Stone. And we were talking one day about hiring staff at CAPS when we meet with these preacher boys. And Matt had an interesting point. I said, How do, what do you guys do? And Matt had this response. He said, you know, he said, I don't come into the hiring until the end. But when I come in, I have this question. I asked the guy or girl, when's the last time you wept over the cross of Jesus Christ? So I've, we've kind of added that. When we're hiring now, we look for three things. We look for somebody that's got gifts in that particular area. We look for somebody, according to 1 Timothy 2, whose character fits the calling. And the third thing I want to know is I want to know if they have a calling. If it's legit. Because if they have a calling, they will be passionate about their character. And they will be passionate about the use of those gifts. It will not be just another job. I remember one time I was walking up the stairs. It was during pageant a few years back. And we had just hired a children's minister. I'm walking up and he's got in a room the kids of the pageant workers. We're having practice, and he's got the kids, seven or eight kids of pageant workers in the room with him. I walk by the conference room upstairs, and as I walk by, I notice him in the room with the kids. He's reading a book, and they're watching TV. So I pulled him in the next morning, and I said, do we call you to be a children's minister? Yeah. I said, so you got a chance to invest for two or three hours in eight kids? And you're reading a book and they're watching TV? Well, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. That's when I knew. Character was okay. Giftedness. But there's no calling. 
Because I'm going to tell you something about a call. When you have a call, it puts a fire in your soul as an elder. So I don't care about just gifting. I don't care about just character. I want a fire in a man's soul because I want to be sure he's called. So you don't lay hands quickly. You make sure. And then you look at this, verse 23. Don't drink any more water. Take a little wine for your stomach. I, I know, Baptist, you're going to hate this. Take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Obviously, Timothy had some major issues health-wise. Now, and somebody... Now, what does this prove, by the way, about Timothy? What does this prove? Baptist. Just not drinking. Southern Baptist, because he says you all. So, we know. <laughs> Southern Baptist. Now, somebody said to Timothy at some point, buddy, you can't drink. You have any alcohol, you've sinned against God. And so, Timothy thinking, man, that's right. He, he's sick. He has trouble going to work. A little alcohol, a little wine would have made things easier, but he doesn't take it because he's locked into the legalism that's been placed in his life by somebody in that church. And I know how that is. So I'm going to say this real carefully, okay? Probably not to any of y'all because if you're here on this kind of day, it doesn't fit you. I'm just going to tell you, okay? A little smile on my face. I love you. I think I've shown, I'll, I'll do anything for you. I'll work my guts out. I'll, I'll work my health down. I don't care. I love you. But there are some in every church that are just crazy. And the crazies will find me and tell me what I should do. I remember I hadn't been here but about a month Air conditioner's out in the old church Sunday night. I'm preaching. I'm hot. That's in the days when you wore a coat tie, the whole shebang. And so I take the jacket off and I'm done. The chairman of deacons gets a call that week. Lady calls him up and says, I was there Sunday night and I just don't appreciate Brother Chris taking his jacket off while he's preaching the word of God. I thought the chairman of deacons had a great response. He said, you know, I've only known him a month, but I got to tell you, if that's the worst thing that guy does, we're probably going to be in good shape. <laughs> the problem is, if we submit to what you think we ought to be, we will wind up imposing that on you. So let me just get down and dirty here. He tells Timothy. Now, Baptist, he tells Timothy, his son in the ministry, head elder, he can have some alcohol. Now, the Bible, two things that I think the Bible says about alcohol. Now, let me tell you before I get there. I don't drink for three reasons. Number one, I didn't drink when my kids were in home because I didn't want them to see me doing that. I'm glad I didn't because they said they would have by seeing me. Number two, I don't drink because I uh, have an addictive personality. I know if I do it, I won't be able to stop it. It will eventually control me. And thirdly, we have people in this church that are struggling with alcohol. I don't want them to see me, the pastor, buying something and legitimizing their struggle. I don't want to be a stumbling block. So I don't drink for those reasons. I don't let staff drink for those reasons. Now, 
Beyond that, I think any, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who are two of the finest Christians I know in the universe, have a glass of wine every single night before they have dinner. I don't know anybody that loves Christ better than they do. I don't know anybody that prays for me more than they do. Great people. So, I don't think the Bible teaches you can't drink. Here's what I think it does say two things about alcohol, okay? I do think it says, number one, you can't get drunk. You get drunk, you violate the Scripture. Don't come to me. And I'm going to tell you how bad I am. I think if a guy gets drunk and gets behind the wheel of a car, I have buried more than one person because of that. I have no problem with a death penalty for that. Now, that's how strong I am on the deal. You don't get drunk, and you particularly don't get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car. Now, the uh, reason I said that is now no jury will ever pick me. So, <laughs> the other thing is, I think the Bible teaches us that we can drink, but I think it teaches us to be afraid of drink. The Bible says in Proverbs, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived with that is not wise. I think the whole principle is you're afraid of it. You can certainly take it. You can certainly do that, but you need to be afraid of it. I think that's my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They drink one glass of wine before dinner. They don't ever go past that because there's a fear factor in them of how far to go. So I think you live off that fear factor, but abstinence is not a biblical position. And so he says to Timothy, look, don't listen to these people that are putting their stuff on you. You got to drink. Take some alcohol for your stomach. That's fine. Then he says, last thing, listen to this. The sins of some men are evident and they wind up leading them to judgment. There are some that follow after people in the same way good works are evident, but those that aren't evident will not be able to be hidden. Here's what he says, last thing, and then I'm almost done. He says that my character will show itself at some point. He says the character of every staff member will show itself at some point. And by now you know my character. You know the good, you know the bad. I think this is absolutely correct. I remember when I came here, there were a co-chairman of the pulpit committee, Mike Middleton and Derwood Thompson. Derwood, one of the finest older men in our church. I remember, as a matter of fact, Tim Skaggs put my resume in the pile, and I called Tim and said, tell me the makeup of the pulpit committee. He said, there's a bunch of young people one old man. Derwood was 70 at the time. So, uh, Somebody asked Derwood after they called me, and I came here, and I was in town. Somebody from another church that will remain nameless said, so uh, you guys got a new pastor we heard? He said, yeah. He said, well, you think he's any good? He said, well, no, in about two years. There's some legitimacy to that. At some point, we know what we are. A staff member cannot hide his failure. And he cannot hide his character, good or bad. So let me say a couple things and then I'm done. The staff right now in this church, the paid staff, I made this statement at CAPS a couple of years ago. I said it's the finest staff I've had in all my time at Central. Sitting in the room were four former staff members at Central who then looked at me and said, so what are we? I'm just going to tell you, hands down, it's the best staff we have. 
They love Christ. They love you. They love their calling. And they have great character. We have the finest staff we've had. This is my fourth church. Based on what I know out of Jeremiah 1, this church is the reason I was born. My first church, God taught me that vision was an important discipleship was. My second church, he broke me spiritually and taught me that I needed his power, not mine, to be able to do what I was called to do. I went to my third church, which was an outstanding church, and he taught me what a good church ought to be. And I can legitimately say today on these steps behind the Bible, I've preached in I don't know how many churches. I've dealt with I don't know how many pastors in all the years I've been doing this. All my years on executive committee as president of the convention, all the pastors I've met, all the people I know. I can honestly say with my hand on this book, there is no greater church I've ever known than this church. I think we've done it well. I think we've done it right. And I think it's why God's blessed us. I mean, all kidding aside, the world's flooding around us. And you look at how many people are sitting in this room today. Many brought kids. I'm telling you. I love you. I will make this promise to you. I will stay inside this book. I will, as best I can, without the attack of the enemy, maintain my integrity. The staff will do the same thing. We will live out three things for you. We will make sure we're gifted. We'll increase that. We'll make sure our character is strong, and we will make sure our calling is diligently served because of two things. We want to honor Christ, and we want to honor you. Let's pray. Father, unique part of your scripture, not something we talk about often, but great clarity. Thank you for the people here today. It was effort to get here. They came here to worship you, to hear your word. Honor them this week just because of that and who they are in your son. We ask that in his name. With your heads bowed, eyes closed. If you've never met Christ, today's a good day. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship. We're going to ask you to respond to him. If you just need to come down here and pray about something, we're glad for you to do that. So as the Holy Spirit walks in this room today and speaks, you respond.